Hi, I'm Roxy Manning. And I'm Sarah Payton. We're the hosts of the Fierce Compassion podcast. In this episode of Fierce Compassion, we talk with Zilla Eisenstein, anti-racist activist, feminist, and political theorist about her life, her work, her activism, and her writing. She shares about activism in her childhood and the cost and benefits of exposing children to real inequities and social ills. We journey with her through 60 years of anti-racist action in the U.S. and in the world. Zilla explores intersectionality and anti-racism and touches on the way they permeate all aspects of modern life. She explores the importance of being willing to risk in building collaborative activism. And in our conversation, we touch on the danger of ideas around fragility and hope and what we need to show up and be effective. And she highlights the democratizing impact of the many challenges facing society today and ways we can meet those challenges. Join us. Welcome to Fierce Compassion, the podcast that explores the power of compassion in creating an anti-racist society. I'm Roxy Manning. And I'm Sarah Payton. We are delighted to have American political theorist and gender studies scholar Zilla Eisenstein as a guest on our podcast. Zilla is a distinguished emerita professor of politics at Ithaca College in New York, With a focus on political and feminist theory, Zilla has explored the intersections of class, sex, race, politics, and gender construction. Destruction, I wanted to say. She she is the author of 12 books and edited the influential 1978 collection, Capitalist Patriarchy and the Case for Socialist Feminism, featuring the Combahee River Collective Statement. And in case you don't know, between 1974 and 1980 in Boston, the Combahee River Collective was a transformative Black feminist, lesbian socialist organization that challenged the limitations of both mainstream feminism and the civil rights movement. So instead, they highlighted the unique intersectional needs of Black women and lesbians. Zilla. You have been committed to anti-racist action and writing for many decades now. What is your origin story with anti-racism? Well, my origin story is my family. Ah. My parents were part of the Communist Party. And when in those years early on, uh, the Communist Party in the United States, its major politics was anti-racism. It had really very much less to do with, you know, the economic aspects of communism. And so um, I had three sisters and we were brought up in the civil rights movement and um, lived in and grew up in and with just the unique now, (laughs) completely interracial community where the people who loved you and who you loved were black, brown, and white. So the intimacy of that. um, This was the Communist Party? The Communist Party was black, brown, and white? Well, uh, that was my life in 
in that, in the Communist Party. I mean, yes, I mean, the Communist Party was, um, yes, it was black, brown and white. (laughs) So it was probably um, more white in the U.S., but still it was, yeah. But my life was um, because of the civil rights movement, which comes, you know, that's in the 50s, right? So, I mean, we're my sisters and I were quite young at that point. But, you know, Saturday morning we got up and went and picketed Woolworths. Mm. I mean, that was our Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and, and the intimacy of anti-racism was just so core in my life and my sister's life. And my parents, they had very different personalities, um, so they came to it a little differently, but they were unrelenting and uncompromising in terms of anti-racism. So, you know, just... I don't know if your parent, you know, if you are parents or not, but there are just a million things that your children ask and beg for out of, you know, love. Can't you let me go to that swimming party? And um, that was in Columbus, Ohio. I was in high school. We had just moved there. I knew no one. I was so excited to be invited to a party. And of course, my father said, where is the swimming pool, Zila? And I said, it's on the north side. And he said, no, you can't go to the party. You know, that's a, that will be a white pool. And I said, but it's not segregated, Dad. I mean, there's not. He says, oh, yes, it is. I don't care if it's legally or not. This is, you cannot go. Mm-hmm. So I hated him. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I mean, I, that's also part of, how I became who I became, but I was often lonely, you know, and it was scary to just be out there. Um, In Atlanta, Georgia, um, my parents, both of them, were involved very much in the civil rights movement. Lester Maddox was the governor at that time. Um, The Pickrick was a very well-known restaurant that all Southern states were really picketing. And... um, It was just a very volatile time. My dad was teaching at Atlanta University, which is the graduate part of Spelman and Clark and Morehouse. Which are historically black colleges, yeah. They they are black colleges. But at that time, because of the civil rights movement, um, that time the politics was to try to bring some white professors. So it was also Stoughton Lind was there and... um, Oh, the historian, whose name I'm going to forget. Um, they were all at Spelman and at AU. And, um, but I, had, I, I went to um, a school that had just been integrated, which meant that there was one black kid. It oh, was my goodness. A, it was a white school. His name was Clemsey Wood. I'll never forget it. Um, and also to the extent that I just was warm and friendly to him, you know, there was just enormous. Um, I, I was in a lot of danger. So the, my parents loved me. I know they loved me, but that didn't mean that I was kept out of danger. Because right. why? Black people don't have that choice, Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I so, mean, 
this isn't even one of the things we wanted to talk to you about, but what you're yeah. naming is something that I think is on so many parents' mind today, right? Because a lot of us are thinking, how do we protect our kids? How do we keep them safe? But like you said, a lot of kids don't have that option to be safe, and it prevents them from developing their own moral compass to understanding how the world works. No, absolutely. And I mean, my parents, they of course, they tried to keep us safe, but did we get, you know, put in paddy wagons. I mean, it wasn't until I had my own daughter that I thought, shit, they were <laughs> they were really courageous. They didn't have a clue what was going to happen to us, mm-hmm. you know, when we were taken to juvenile detention or whatever. So, but when that's part of your core, it's part of my core. Right. You know, and um, and now I, I, you know, now and for the last, what, 40 years? I mean, it's a long time. I'm, what, 75. So, um, it's, you know, it's just, it's in me and it's yeah. just how I live. What's the changing landscape been like for you as a white person? Here you are picketing Woolworths. Here you are getting put in paddy wagons. Here you are helping to edit and publish the Combahee River Collective Statement. Um, and then here we are in this new world of anti-racism where so many people are, so many people who were in the civil rights movement are saying, I'm an ally. I was, I, I marched in the civil rights movement. And yet there's like all these things that are being asked and the, and a call to consciousness. But it ha- I mean, it does. It just brings out all of the complexity. I mean, early on when people started talking about ally, I mean, I knew ally's not good enough. <sighs> you know, ally means that you're, what, you're not in it? Mm-hmm. You know, what does it mean to be an ally? You're right. supporting, but you're from some other space. So, I mean, I had horrible conflicts, again, feeling quite lonely with other white people (laughs) who their idea, you know, was still, you know, to me, I just thought, um, and this, of course, you know, has changed and and now they're, um, but still, I mean, I'm, we all come to our politics through, you know, through our history, right? And I don't, I don't privilege my history, but my history is how I know how to work and what I trust, you know. So do I compromise easily? No. And when I'm in meetings and I really feel as though that this is, you know, puffery and, you know, I'll just... You'll just name it. (laughs) I'll just name it as such, yeah. In the same way as, you know, when I'm in work with... um, Trans, you know, activism, which is also, I mean, some of the the most endangered people are black trans women. And um, but if you ask me my pronoun, I'll say call me Zila. I've spent my whole damn life not being put into the she category. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. don't put me there, even if I'm asking you not to put me there for different reasons than, you know, a sexual identity. So, you know. But again, none of it's a problem if you're if you believe in um, that honesty and risk. You have to if if I know I'm risking myself, I know I know I'm building. But most of my deepest intimate black friends, I there were years where you know I just had to risk to build the bridge that now is completely, you know, that we are comrades. And um, 
but that takes time and it takes um, an enormous commitment. Yeah, that's for sure. Does it also, we want to know, we always ask our guests, how do you define self-compassion? And then does self-compassion play a role in this for you? Okay, so you see, that's so interesting because I've really had to think about that. I don't, you know, first of all, self, I mean, I don't work from the self. Mm. I don't, you know, that's not my, that my unit is not that. My unit is the community. Even though the community is made up of all of us. But also, I worry that today the focus on self is so tied to a kind of insidious neoliberalism where people think in such individual terms. So when you sent me, and I think I wrote to someone like, what? What, what, is, what, what do you want me to think about here? Mm-hmm. No, I wasn't quite sure. It's just not, that's not my journey to getting to where I need to be. So, I mean, me, yeah, go ahead. Well, I can yeah, speak. so one of the things I'm thinking about as I hear you, and this is kind of juicy, I love that this is coming up, is there's a way that when I hear you speak about my unit is the collective, et cetera, I wonder, and this is going to sound edgy, I wonder if that's a position that you can be in because you've always been part of a collective. And so when I think about my identity as a black woman, being in schools and being in places where I've been alone, I've had to rely on myself. I've had to find ways to look at all of the kind of judgments that are coming at me and learn how to not internalize it. So it's almost like there's something about holding the both, the importance of looking at that and holding that collective lens, and then thinking about what gives us the privilege of being able to say, I am self-reliant or I'm not going to be self-reliant. And I, I ask this question with all of the concerns I have around like how individualistic our society is and how that's like celebrated. It's not what I'm asking for at all, but I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts about this. Yeah, well, it also, first of all, the question in your thought is good because it isn't either or, you know, communities are made up of selves, particularly for any woman. I don't care what our race is or our economic class or our sexuality, you know, um, to, to be able to, to trust yourself and to stand against so much of the misogyny that comes at us um, it, you know, that that takes a lot of work. So, I mean, the idea, even when I'm saying, you know, the, the only way I could do a lot of what I have done in my life is because I also, um, you know, can trust myself, you know, and the trust in myself comes from the conflicts that that I've, you know, not ease, but conflict. I mean, enormous, um, you know, I mean, just just enormous um, undermining uh, in the hopes that I could be undermined as an anti-racist, socialist, feminist. I mean, you know, that what I wasn't, I, I haven't been easily embraced in my life, you know. I mean, in Atlanta, Georgia, you know, um, particularly organized, you know, synagogues. I mean, they they would have nothing to do with my family, 
my dad taught at Atlanta University. We lived in the black community because that's where faculty housing was, you know. So the idea of, you know, walking to my so-called white school being called a white bitch in the black neighborhood and then going to school and being called an N-lover. I mean, I did ask my parents, is this not a little much? You know, I mean, how am I supposed to find out who I am? But guess what? I did. Yes. And they did not come. They did not get scared for me. I think. Yeah, go ahead. I think this is part of where, like, when I think about self-compassion, this is where it comes in. Because when I think about, like, I have a teen and my teen's 18. When I think about my teen, like, walking into the world and being called all sorts of names, part of what they need to be able to do is to say, the part of me that says, hey, dad, this is too much. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to be able to hold that part with compassion and say, of course, I understand why you don't want to do that and that it's hard and it feels horrible and you're still fighting that. You're still getting into that, staying in the fray, right? So it's being able to hold with a lot of understanding the parts of ourselves that are not wanting to engage in what is hell at times. Right. And, and it can hurt and you can be scared and that's just what it is. So even now there are moments recently that I've been involved in stuff that, you know, the world is just agonizingly horrible. And I, you know, what I love, aging is really hard, but what I love about it is I'm good. I mean, it took, you know, it took a long time to be as calm and free as I am, but I'm free now. You know, you try to mess with me. And that's really how I feel. <laughs> so it's good. I mean, I, that's, you know, it's, it's a, you know, um, all I, now I feel a real commitment to younger people that I work with that I do, they do come to believe that, yeah, I guess we can do it. And that's, you know, black, brown, Asian, white. I mean, I, I really have a very... Um, mixed political life and personal life also which makes my life so interesting and easier because the people who are intimately part of my life keep keep me in the world right yes of course speaking of people who have kept you in the world yeah (laughs) who who have been here? I mean, I'm just sitting over here going, oh, Zilli, you are my new role model. I wonder who has been your role model. I, well, I don't, um, I don't, you know, it's just, I, I would really have to think about that. There are people who give me, that I work with now and who I've worked with over the years that um, really uh, sustain me. Uh-huh. But I don't, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think kind of, again, going just back to my childhood, it was, you know, you you had to believe in yourself and your truth. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, you know, I mean, I've never been one to um, look at different kind of hierarchies or external so the people who have inspired you most are the people who have, or the people who are most nourishing to you. It sounds like are like your friends, 
Yes, You're the people that closest to people. the people that make it possible, both historically, you know, in my life and and now, you know, the people who just even when they're not sure, <laughs> they'll do it anyhow, you know, <laughs> you know, and if that is just to keep our friendship, that's fine with me. You know, we all need something that just gives us the but um but it's also a, a kind of way of of living. I mean that, you know, I really think anti-racism means that you can't believe, I mean, you can't say you're an anti-racist and then believe in the hierarchies and want to be recognized in them. They're, they're too racist, they're too misogynist, you know, they're too nasty. So, but I will say from a very young, you know, early part of my life, entering the academy, you know, when senior faculty, and it was always men, I'm political theory, there were no other women when I was starting. I, you know, I didn't give a shit. I really didn't. You know, they'd call me in and say, if you don't, you know, when I was working on the capitalist patriarchy book, um, when I was waiting for Combi's statement, and they kept saying, Zila, it's coming, it's coming. And monthly review said, Zila, you're, you're past deadline. You know, and I do remember saying, look, I'm waiting for Gumby. You know, <laughs> you can't do the, it's my book. You can't, you know, you can't publish without it. So just wait, mm. you know, and um, the, the point there was on some level that, I'm, you know, there was a way that I just believed that it was so important for those written words to be made into now of course i had no idea what how important the book capitalist patriarchy was going to become politically for the next decade and then for sure combi i mean that that was really it was written for the book but the book was it was a political book it wasn't some academic book it was right. about and by people who were struggling mm -hmm. um to find what is and anti-racist socialist feminism. And then, of course, Kambahi was just brilliant um, in, in that work. But it all, it all was, I ran a series called the Marxist Feminist Speakers Series um, at Ithaca College. And I had invited Barbara Smith to come and to, you know, talk about the Kambahi. So she did that. And then I said, you have to, you know, you all have to get together and write this up. I, it has to be documented. Nobody, how do you know? History just, it gets made, you know? And so, but the other thing that I think is important to know is that this was when most of the representation of the, the women's movement was the white women's movement. And we were the socialist feminist part of that and, uh, and on the fringes. You know, we were not part of the center and never given that kind of recognition, which was part of the reason I said we're doing this book, right. you know, and at least we will make a history of this. But for me, I do sometimes I just was writing an introduction uh, for a book, somebody else's book that's going to be published. And um, and I did say you all are reading this book that was written out of the women's movement at that time. And of course, you, you know, 
this book is still brilliant, but what you don't know is the camaraderie that allowed this book to be written. You know? And that a lot of what happened in that early movement was an interracial socialist feminist. I mean, that's when I became best friends with Bell Hooks. That's when I became best friends with Barbara and Angela Davis. I mean, those were, that was the move that, you know, but that's not really usually thought of. You know, as well, I want to I want to ask a question since you've brought in, in some ways, intersectionality, right? And I, I want for our listeners, I wonder if you can define intersectionality, and when did you become aware of it, and how important it was to the work that you were doing? Well, again, you know, words. I mean, of course, I know Kim well. You know, who coined that phrase, um, and phrases are different than ideas, and the ideas really did were expressed by many different black feminists, white socialist feminists, um, and we use different language. I mean, I use the term the mutual dependence and interdependence of racism, sexism, and classism. But there were, you know, um, there were just multi-layers of people working on that idea, and there were you know, different terms for it. Now, at one point early on, I wrote a piece and said, I don't like the term intersectionality. It, it, it just feels linear to me. Okay, now you have to know, there's a part of me that is very careful, like epistemological, philosophical mm-hmm. thinking. So intersection, I was thinking, what is an intersection? It's ah, linear. two lines. Lines, right? And so I was more... Um, with who was it that was it Barbara who did marbled she Mm. talked about that it it was like a marble cake and I'm pretty sure it was Barbara Mm. I don't want to misname the author of that idea but that's what I'm just saying is that now marbled is actually a Greek term you know it just it flows there's no orderliness to it but can you separate out a marble cake? No. Yeah, it was Barb because it was about kitchen table and cakes and cooking and all the rest. Okay. But so all I'm saying is, again, the multiplicity of the idea of intersectionality and then, of course, the way that historical things happen and then at moments terms can sometimes get very powerful. And it's wonderful that that you know, I mean, I use the term intersectional today, but I do remember feeling as though it wasn't exactly my, you know, my yeah. choice of if we're going to talk about how race and sex intersect and gender, you know, um, and particularly like in the work I did um, with uh, uh, black enslaved women in slavery and in some of the arguments I made about that I thought it was really problematic that slavery was always spoken of as a racial, racist system when it was absolutely as engendered and sexualized as it was race. And the black female in, you know, enslaved body, without that, there would have been no slavery. So again, as a feminist here, but an anti-racist one, you know, I just felt, I do feel like today, so much of the language that gets used um, 
although people say things are intersectional, the way they talk is not. Yeah. What's an example of that in the current discourse? And I wonder, because we started talking about Barbie, I wonder if there's a way that you can tie that into some of what's blowing up about Barbie right now. Well, you see, of course, me, I'm thinking, all right, so, you know, there's nothing new here that we're having this commercial moment of trying to make huge amounts of money when um, theaters are having trouble, you know, particularly post-COVID, etc., um, but my, you know, the thing is, is like in this moment where abortion um, rights have been taken away, where there is no reproductive justice, which hits black women the hardest, um, although it hits all women, it is that fabulously democratic thing. We all are affected by this, no matter what your politics are. So, and we know enough that plenty of right-wing women still have abortions. So the idea here of um, just the, what is happening, and then, you know, to me, I'm thinking, so is this a way of, some people are saying, it's to bring back the um, clarity of the 50s. And I'm thinking, well, if you're black, you don't exactly want the clarity of the 50s. Right. I mean, like, what the hell? Right. So um, but of course, if you're white. Um, but then again, if you're a woman, that's before Roe, yeah. you know, it's, no, it's not the time. Right. So but the idea here of, you know, so what does it does still resonate with the idea that at least Barbie is a construct of gender that you can identify at a moment mm-hmm. where there is gender chaos, which I would say is good, good chaos, yeah. but you know, we're just like gender. Are you kidding? Which, which one are you talking about? You know, how many are you in any moment? Right. So, so the idea though of, you know, the, you know, the idea as well that again, that it doesn't take much to just bring out the whiteness, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in a moment yeah. with, because I mean, Barbie is so white. She's so white. She is so white. You yeah. know, she also has these big boobs and she has a tiny waist. Um, but I did watch to get ready for this conversation. I'm supposed to do at some point about Barbie. I did watch a documentary and I was just flummoxed that the woman who identified, uh, who made Barbie, you know, originator is a Jew. And I thought, really, how come you didn't make, you know, why was it a blonde Barbie? Because we all internalize some of these stereotypes. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that just, I just kind of connected to as you were speaking, I mean, there's so many things, but one thing that I'm still just sitting here mulling over is this idea about like who we talk about when these moments come up. So you just talked about, you know, we've lost reproductive rights. And what I realized as I heard you speak when we're talking about intersectionality is that all of the news articles I've seen that are profiling, here's how this is harming every woman, has only profiled, I think I can remember one woman of the global majority, everyone else has been a white woman. Like here's this white woman with this rare disorder who had to carry this baby that everyone knew was gonna die, but it's always a white woman being profiled in this way. And I somehow didn't 
that didn't hit me until now. That it's almost like it only matters now if it's affecting white women. Oh. Although at the same time, there is this, you know, all of this new data out that, um, you know, makes clear that we have a, a very high death rate among pregnant women and that the death rate for black women at, while pregnant is, you know, off the charts right. in terms of global stuff. But that's also true. You know, I, I wrote a, a book about breast cancer and, um, and basically, you know, I, I mean, I said several things in that book. But one of the major things um, was that most of the conversation about breast cancer, it just had to do with white women. Right. Even though black women, um, for, for many black women, um, breast cancer can be more deadly. Right. Now, so, and the whole environmental racism issue as well that is part of breast cancer. And part of the reason, I mean... At one point, speaking of friends and politics, um, I I did have breast cancer and um, and and lost two sisters very young to breast cancer. And so, friends of mine said to me, "Zila, how how come you're you just have to write a book about breast cancer because of the way you think about it?" And I mean, I I do have the BRCA mutation, so of course that's what most people think often with breast cancer is people, the first question is, oh, do people in your family have it? You know? And um, actually, I love a, a, a woman that I um, worked with very much while I was writing the book, Sandra Steingraber. Um, she wrote a book about breast cancer and, um, no, sorry, she wrote a book about cancer and she's asked the question, she also had cancer. And she was asked the question, um, so do, do people in your family have it? And she said, yes. And then she said, but I'm adopted. Oh. So, and she is an environmental theorist, you know. Mm -hmm. And so me, I thought, look, I got the BRCA. So I'm allowed to say, uh-uh-uh-uh, it's environmental more than it is. You need triggers to get the, you know. But again, this idea of how we think about it. But at that point, I really got involved with a lot of black health workers and doctors while I was doing the book. Uh, Gina Lithcott was the dean of uh, Columbia Medical School at that time. And um, anyway, they it, it was a very rich time. It's now, what, 15, 20 years ago. And there was all this research going on about um, really trying to find out what is it, you know, about black women and breast cancer. You know, so the point here, again, is, you know, I just feel like um, you, you're asking about anti-racist work, and it's just like it's in everything. Yeah. You know, so intersectional, almost, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that's enough. It's like everywhere. And what we have to, you know, um, so I forget her first name, the poet Gorman. You know when the five people died in the little um, submergible, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah. panic and stuff, there was that. And then there were more than 800 refugees who died in the boat, yes, um, yes. mainly, I think, Indians, Pakistanis and stuff. And... Um, 
and nothing. And so uh, Gorman wrote this very lovely, really powerful piece um, in the New York Times and then wrote a short poem. And it really was, she was asking about the people in the sea, uh, in the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. we need to think about the people in the ocean. And then I'm reminded of the book I used in one of my courses called The Ship by Marcus Redeker. And it was about the slave ship. And what he argued in that book, I mean, and, you know, we, you know, we know is that the Atlantic Ocean is the largest graveyard in the world. Mm-hmm. So this idea Again, you know, like exactly when do you start what you see? Where's the intersectional moment where you're looking for who's there? You know, and for me, I'm always asking the question, who's there? You know, and that's like, I think we need tricks no matter, you know, and it's different depending on what your race and your classes and your location in on the globe. But I have a practice and in the morning I have to have, you know, 10 to 15 sites in my head before I start the day. You have to have 10 to 15 sites. You know, I'll just think Sudan, Iranian women, Mm -hmm. to just pull me from the, you know, the narrowness of the way that our lives Ah, so this takes us toward uh, something you did for a couple of years where you were a, a columnist at Al Jazeera. Yeah. How did that come about? And yeah, and then I have a follow-up question to that. Well, I left the academy before I was ready to, but I just couldn't stand what was happening, you know, um, long before COVID. I mean, we were, you know, COVID uh, on some level you could say was a democratizing moment, even though a deadly one is that we were in such crisis as a globe and a country. And and it just blew all of the covers off of every structure that was in trouble. And, you know, I worked in the academy and for maybe the last decade that I was there, I just hated the way that um, labor was getting reorganized. Fewer people were really getting the kind of good job I had, which, you know, was a full professor with my own office. And other, you have the, you know, now I think it's more than 50% of the academy is adjunct workers who, you know, now, of course, to be honest here, again, this just shows, right? You know, we just then have to bring the intersection here to, to where? To the strike right now. You know, these workers have been picked apart. You know, the, the writers um, and the actors, they, they, they don't have the same jobs that they used to. And then um, they're not getting paid even for whatever, you know, but it's this piecemeal cutting apart of, it's the fragmentation of labor that happened to um, factories in the early 70s and 80s during the first stage of globalization. Right. So my point here is, I mean, we could just go on all night. You know, there's like, you know, and the point here is that the racial structure is just at the very base of these structures. Right. So there you were. When you say academy, 
tell me what's the academy? Roxy probably knows, but I don't know. Oh, the academy is just academic institutions. Okay. Okay. All okay. colleges and universities. So you you stepped out of working in academia in the academy. Right. And I decided, yeah. So I thought, okay, so. I'm going to try writing for Al Jazeera and also the Feminist Wire was um, one of those kind of journals at that time as well. And, um, you know, it was really hard. But after, you know, about a year, I was pretty good at it. You know, you just. And you got to write there about the global, these things, these things yeah. that you're talking about, you got to write about the global experience of women and the global experience of the global major- majority, which... Yeah, and I mean, I've, the, you know, what is so interesting, like in a lot of work I've done with Indian feminists, I remember, you know, I've done that for many decades, but then just pretty recently, like, you know, maybe five, eight years ago, when I was in Mumbai, and a group of Indian feminists in, in a meeting that I was in, they said to me, so Zila, how did you... How did you get um, it to work? You know, you're white and so much of the work you do is with black women. How did you get that to work? And I said, well, first, tell me why you're asking me, you know. And so these were Brahmin women, you know, and um, they were saying that um, in terms of the caste structure, that they found that Dalit women, who are supposedly at the bottom of the caste structure, that they didn't trust them, you know? And, you know, and so then I realized, yeah. For clarity, that the Dalit woman didn't trust the Brahmin woman, not the other way around, right? Right. Well, and maybe the other way around, you know, who knows? But this was Brahmin women basically saying, we really want to work. We want to change this structure. And they don't they don't really trust us. And I said, well, trust takes time. Yeah. You know, you have to work hard and and not and and be totally um, revealing of everything. You have to be willing for them to to, you know, charge you with being cast oriented, which Probably you are on some level. How can any of us be purely not of something that we have, you know, lived within? So, but I found it was a fascinating moment for me. I thought, wow. And Zila, this is like going back to something you had mentioned before about this idea of being an ally, right? And so I think about these women saying, we want to serve this group that's different than our group. And one of the questions that always comes up for me is like, and whose agenda are you serving? How are you getting and figuring out who's leading, who's following? And so I see a lot of people coming in saying, but I'm here, I'm ready to support you in this very specific way, as opposed to saying, I'm here, what do you need? How can I serve? So that's one of the, yeah. Absolutely. But it's also, you know, the same thing about like abolitionist work, you know, in the prisons, you know, you have to have formerly incarcerated people in your group to, to really be able to hear and to know and to listen. And, you know, you can't, you can't do that without the, the closeness and the intimacy of those conversations, which doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really at ease with who I am. You know, I know I am an anti-racist, so I'll 
I don't care, you know, what your color is. I'll argue to, you know, if if I don't if I don't believe what you're saying, I there is, you know, I don't look for a comfort zone. You know, and that I think has allowed the most fabulous mm. <laughs> fabulous. There's something in what you're saying that's also it really connects to the work that Sarah and I do, right? So you talked about, you know, you have to know who you are and you have to be able to withstand and not withstand, but embrace people questioning you and challenging you and saying, hey, what you're saying isn't working. And so many people don't have that capacity. It's like when they get pushback, when they get any sort of resistance, they collapse. And, you know, we talk a lot about, quote, white fragility, for instance, in anti-racist movements. Oh, and I hate that. <laughs> right. So I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts about this? <laughs> I, I just get out of my face with that, you know? Like, first of all, I just think the conversation, you know, is is just pathetic. I hate it. Say and, why. And, Say why. Well, because it just to to talk about it, whether even if you're saying you're being critical of it, it validates it. You know, it just validates the feeling. And I, you know, I just, you know, if you're going to do political work, you just you're not allowed to be fragile. You're just not, you know, and that doesn't mean that we're not fragile, but you're not allowed to be. So the point here is, how do you work with people to move from wherever it is that they are and whatever is frightening them, you know? So what have you done? What do you find is helpful for that? To work with people in those moments of whatever, like fragility, fear, whatever, what do you find actually helps them get out of that and step into these really risky, scary places? Well, you just have to really, you know, really work on um, real, you know, the, the real dilemmas as opposed to the fragility. Hmm. And um, and it's, it's a little bit like um, it reminds me a little bit. I've been asked a lot recently and it's very recently. I mean, in the, just the last few years about. So, you know, how can you be hopeful? You know, but you, you know, how, how is that possible? And that's another side of fragility too, kind of, you know, like what you have to think it's going to work before you try, you know, like what the hell? So the, you know, what, what I've said is that for me, hope is not an idea. It's a practice. I'm hopeful when I'm working at whatever it is that I'm trying to have happen, you know? And, um, and, and, I, and I'm not, I don't, I mean, there's a lot more of this now because I think people are feeling so desperate, but I don't spend, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time wondering if what I'm doing is gonna work because you don't know, there's just no way to know. But if you don't do it, you know it's not gonna work. So, and I mean, I often say this even to my daughter where I'm trying to make her kind of be braver in some of the struggles she's in. She, she is a doctor and she's very involved in um, reproductive health. Oh. Um, 
And she also, um, she, she works in uh, Miami, Florida, and uh, primarily for undocumented and unhoused people. So, I mean, she's just right in the mess there. And there's a lot of mess. And I'm, I mean, our personalities are different, so I have to be careful. But I do, I do say, you know, Sarah, you do what you do because you must do it, not because of what might, you know, whether you're going to be successful or not. You know, you're worried what the response is going to be rather than just doing what, what, so anyhow, to me that, that goes back to fragility as well. And I mean, I just don't think you get to, um, if you're white, you, you just don't get the, you just don't get the right to be in that conversation. Hmm. So I, I really have not been a fan. Uh-huh. Uh, with all the books that you've written, which often have a lot of intersectionality in their titles, <laughs> which which one is your favorite? Which, which out of all of these books and these these places that you've landed for maybe a year or two, what's what's what still touches you? You spoke about the Combahee River Collective. Yeah, I mean they all touch me. I mean they all. I mean my writing it just is totally. It emerges out of the political yeah. fire that I have, you know. I mean, and then many of my books, it was like one of my earliest ones, which, you know, some of the early ones when I, I mean, they, I just think, who wrote this? I mean, it's like all these footnotes and, you know, just like, really? <laughs> you know, the law library? I wrote this book, The Female Body and the Law. No memory of, like... <laughs> Finding all that information, I just think, am I glad it's done? Yes, because it really does prove there is no female body in the law. (laughs) You know, we are not anywhere to be found. You know, so when Rehnquist said, you can't have abortion because we're not in the Constitution, like, really, what the hell? We're not in anything, you know? So you're saying, you know, our absence doesn't allow us a presence. But, um, but I, uh, like the just to give you an example, and it's interesting because a friend was asking me who is in still in the academy and trying to you know be able to get promoted and everything, and she was saying, "So Zila, you know, do you write? Did you know when you were writing a book? I mean, like, did you just just you know choose a, and that I'm writing this so oh, that yeah, I can?" Good question. And no, I never, you know. You just wrote with whatever yeah. you were thinking about. And exactly. then you said, here's the intersectional title of this particular thought stream. You know, and I say, this is a made up end. There are no ends to anything. And, you know, people who've kind of studied my book say, it's just one conversation. Just look at the end and you'll see that it gets. Are you writing one now? What's the conversation for you right now? Well, I have. I really have a book written, but I just don't know if I want to go through the hassle, you know, getting it out in this world. But it really is, um, you know, writing in the time of COVID. Oh, very interesting. You know, and it's um, and it really is because so much happened. I mean, I just remember, again, coming back to our theme of anti-racism, you know, in the beginning with COVID and people being told to be careful and stay in. And then, of course, we had um, 
you know, the demonstrations by Black Lives Matter. Yes. Um, and people, you know, w- would say to me, Zilla, really, it's just too dangerous for you to be in these demonstrations. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, no, not really. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, again, I, my father was in my head, really? Uh-huh. Like, yeah, you get to choose. How come you get to choose? Mm-hmm. They don't, you know, black people don't get to choose that it's mm-hmm. too dangerous to be out here. Mm-hmm. So it's just... It's just interesting The art, you know, COVID really did develop some very interesting struggles with people that um, I work with, but where it just brought uh, the commitment to anti-racism, you know, to, to the core of just what, how are we going to be? How are we going to, how are we going to live? And even in the same way that just with the, um, the smoke in the air in the Northeast and, you know, what was it? First, first time it happened to us, I guess, about a month ago and we got the, these warnings to stay yeah. inside yeah. and I'm looking out my window and I'm, I see all of the truck drivers. I live in downtown Ithaca, so I can out my window, I can see all the delivery guys. And, um, and I think we, we don't learn anything. No. Stay inside. And then here are the workers, you know, so, I mean, I actually went outside. I still have tons of masks. Who doesn't still have tons of masks? Because they were saying um, wear masks to just keep the particles out. And it was a really bad day, which I did. And, and of course, they all took them. But I did think to myself, you know, we just. You went outside with your masks and you gave them to the people who had to be out there. Is that what you just said? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. You know. And I mean, I was going out there because, again, I just felt that, first of all, <laughs> two thirds of the world is out in this air. Yeah. Any- yeah. And the only thing, again, coming back to kind of my theme about, we, you know, we're living in a horrible moment, but it's a very democratizing moment in the sense that right now, um, what, you know, what Europe and the U.S. Um, are suffering in the way that Pakistan and Iran, you know, are, have been suffering from climate disaster. Yeah, yeah. It's about time we had some climate disaster bring right. it to our senses. Yeah. But, yeah, exactly. And it has. I mean, Pete, there is a consciousness now mm-hmm. that did not exist before. So that is a political possibility yeah. that I don't care how we come to it, you know, that we're too slow and too selfish Whatever. Now that people are saying, yes, we have to do something good. So my feeling is between climate, between abortion, between some of the anti-racist stuff, Mm -hmm. um, if we could just get ourselves together. Mm. Well, Scylla... This so far, this has been like super amazing, and we're getting to a close. So I wonder what yeah. kind of advice would you have for folks who are coming up now who want to contribute? Oh, just you know, just know everything is different and new. Mm-hmm. Even though everything is new, it is old, but nothing. Just you, you just have to be so curious and brave. Hmm. You know, you have to really try to see beyond whatever is your your own life, you know, and um, and uh, and and engage because there is we have no choice here. Either 
either we get this together and make this a livable planet in terms of both a real democracy where people can breathe and be free and a planet that is not going to implode on us or we're, we are going to be gone. So, I mean, there is a very positive note here. I am not depressed. Mm. I think that, you know, I get sad. I mean, yeah. I sometimes just get sad, you know, like, oh. It's like we're grieving, but still yeah. not depressed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder, like, are there any specific concrete actions that you would want our listeners to change? It might be learning about any of these issues you named or going to any of the things that you're supporting right now and learning more about that? Well, I think that people, what, what makes sense is there are so many different issues. If guns really are an issue for you, there are really lots of young people organizing on that with an enormous effect. It's just not enough yet. You know, in terms of climate, again, young people, amazing across the globe, you know. Um, in terms of abortion, across the globe. And women really are demanding, you know, freedom for their whole selves, whether it is to not cover their heads or to be able to get an abortion when so and there are just so many local organizations that I think that um, once we you know hopefully once we can get some real coalition for you know formed which hopefully could be global I mean there used to be global movements you know particularly right out of Africa yeah you know so but um I think that what you, I think that a lot of energy has to be used to not isolate yourself and to find something that you care about and begin to work there. And don't think something isn't enough, you know, because the, 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 your, your actual activism is where you are going to find yourself. You know, I often don't know who I'm going to be in a week. I mean, ask me if I would have done half the things I've done in the last two weeks. No way. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know they would happen. So just, don't, you know, don't be too orderly yeah. about, <laughs> you know, just... It, this is, and to, to really recognize that you can't ask, uh, you know, we can't ask to be authorized by this, a society that is really trying to quiet us. But there are so many people today who are actively resisting. I mean, you know, and um, even in terms of traditional labor, you know, the labor, I mean, we got a lot of strikes going on right now, yeah. you know, and UPS may go on strike. Yeah. I mean, important strikes. And, and, you know, speaking of the people who are out without masks, strikes from the people who are have to be out without masks yeah. in this air. Yeah, really important. So, yeah, I, and then the other thing is just try to there is so much to know. Just 
really, that can bring such um, energy and joy to go to bed at night knowing something that you did not know when you woke up. I mean, I still, I mean, that is, you know, that's a good day. I love that as a measure of a good day. Do I know something new? Right. Just one thing. Yeah. That's all you need. And you're going to find, you know, more than one. Mm-hmm. But so I, you know, I can't, um, I don't know. I, I know we'll end tonight and I'll think, oh, how did I not say this or that or the other thing? But um, I hope that, I mean, I'm just somebody who I really have been working collectively um, with women in the United States, across the globe for, you know, almost half a century. It just seems incredible. And um, and and I do think we're going to win. I do think we're going to win. So, thank you for being with us. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for thinking of me. And for our listeners, we'd love to invite you to support this work in the world by going to our website, antiracistconversations.com. And there you'll learn how to purchase our new books, how to have anti-racist conversations and the anti-racist heart. And you'll also be able to listen to our past podcast guests, learn about our new ones, and then also about upcoming classes and workshops and ways to get involved. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.